men did wear heeled footwear very happily from around 1600 to about 1730. Welcome to Fashion Cast, the fashion industry's premier podcast where we explore all things fashion, from designers and the latest trends to sustainability and breaking fashion news. We keep you informed. Now, enjoy the show with your hosts, Michael Gloucester and me, Christine Tuktuk. Welcome to the latest episode of Fashion Cast with special guest Elizabeth Semelhack, creative director and senior curator at the Bata Shoe Museum in Toronto, Canada. Elizabeth is one of the world's most renowned shoe historians and curators with over 20 exhibitions curated. A prolific writer, Elizabeth has authored nearly 30 articles and chapters and more than 11 books. She's also been featured in articles and interviews in countless magazines and newspapers, including Vogue, Elle, GQ, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, among many others, and has appeared on numerous television, radio, and podcast shows. Welcome to FashionCast, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. So you've been working at the Bata Shoe Museum for over 20 years now. What led you to curating and specifically shoes? It's a bit of a circuitous route. I didn't study fashion or footwear design at all uh, or history. I did um, my doctorate work in Japanese art history. You know, Ooh. leads directly to shoes. <laughs> 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 and uh, the real answer to the question is um, I had a master's in Western art history and I had a, a master's so far in um, Asian art history. And believe it or not, my mother, who's an intellectual uh, properties lawyer, um, international intellectual properties lawyer, she had an office in Toronto and she had an office in Buffalo, which is where I grew up. And she went to the Battashi Museum in 1999 for an event and ha heard Mrs. Abata speak. And she called me that night and she said, I found the perfect place for you to work. It's the Battashi oh, Museum. Wow. Oh, and, I said, and I said, Mom, I do 18th century <laughs> Japanese prints. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and then just by coincidence, um, about three months after she mentioned this, uh, the job is of um, chief curator opened. And it was actually really interesting but I applied kind of on a fluke mm. to tell my mom I was listening to her. <laughs> and the next thing I knew I was being um, flown up. And what I realized was that there had been so little research done on the history of footwear and that the core questions that I was asking of Japanese prints, which were mass produced elements of, or aspects of popular culture, uh, where I was looking at the intersections of gender, economics, and fashion, that I could actually take those core questions that really get me up every day and now begin to apply them to shoes. And so I didn't know how long I would last in footwear, how many questions I would have, but holy moly, I still have more questions than I will ever be able to um, answer. Mm -hmm. So you're originally from the U.S.? I am. So how many times have we heard that on this show where... It's mama's fault. You know? <laughs> know. Thanks, thanks to mom. <laughs> it's mama's fault that I am hey, I so damn successful. <laughs> I am so successful. This international renowned uh, shoe historian, and it's mama. Well, that's a wonderful story. I love that. I don't, <laughs> the one thing I don't understand, and maybe Aki and you each can, you know, explain this to me and to the audience is, I mean, how do you look at shoes? Are these, are these historical artifacts? Are they collector items? Are they fashion items? 
Are they all of the above? I'm not really sure. And I've been to the museum, which is fascinating, but you need a week to stay there. You know, <laughs> it's just an amazing place. So how do you look at it? So uh, I do think that, you know, I, I was trained as an art historian, but even when I was studying art history, the reason why I gravitated towards Japanese prints is because they were mass produced. And what I've realized about myself is that I'm not as interested in the unique object created by the lone genius and then purchased by the single collector. I'm interested in things that are meant to be consumed when they are created en masse. And if those things are successful and millions of people consume them, then that must say something about the moment in which they were created. And so what I'm interested in is trying to tease out the cultural information of mass-produced items. And so shoes are this really wonderful way to, pardon the pun, step into larger <laughs> cultural issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like when uh, you said that you were studying the sort of a uh, crossing point of gender, economics, uh, and fashion, etc. And Iris Arfel said that if you look at a dress, you can tell what kind of a political power is um, in, yes. in, at the moment. But I, I, I agree, like you can look at the shoes, and you can tell what's happening in culture at the moment. So Correct. I agree mm -hmm. 100%. And you wrote this amazing book on sneakers. Oh, are you going to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about <laughs> that for sure. Oh, we're going to talk about it later. Yeah, we, we can talk about it yeah. anytime. But... Before we do so, yeah, I would like to hear, uh, Elizabeth, uh, the day in the life of a senior curator. What's it like? I think the thing that I really love about my job um, is that literally no day is the same as the other. Oh, that's One nice. of the things that's amazing about shoes is everybody wears them mm -hmm. and they show up in the media in unexpected ways. I get phone calls. I get uh, one of the first experiences I had when I was hired was the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police came to the museum and they called me down and I, you know, <laughs> awful thoughts were going through my mind. What's happened? What's happened? And it's that they had found a body that the only things left on the body were a pair of rubber shoes and they wanted to know if I could date them. Oh um, my God. And, wow. And so, that's crazy. Oh my God. Now you're and, a forensic. I, I know. Person. What's going on? <laughs> they wanted to know if it was a fresh murder or if it had happened. Oh my God. All I could, all I could say is that I dated the shoes to 1913, uh, 1914 wow. Quebec manufacturer. Wow. And I, you know, the guy could have liked vintage. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Get, <laughs> but at least I could establish the date of the shoes. And so because shoes show up in, show up everywhere, um, a, a day in the life, in my life is really um, full of the unexpected. Mm -hmm. It can be being asked to be interviewed on the history of flip-flops. It can be something like forensics. It can be um, work that I'm doing on 16th century uh, footwear and I'm, I'm going through, um, you know, historic uh, written material. So it's extremely varied. Mm -hmm. And I think that I find that really fascinating. So it's continuously changing. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think you just swerved in. constantly changing, mm -hmm. yeah. I think you just swerved into Aki's lane here, isn't it? I mean, because it sounds very educational, historical. Um, 1913, I mean, you probably, so the shoes outlasted the body, essentially. Well, yes. I yeah. mean, these were vulcanized rubber shoes. And, so they were going to yeah. last like another 25,000 years anyway. <laughs> you know. <Correct>. So <laughs> They were definitely waterproof. Yeah, there was no sustainability thought. But <laughs> No, no, not at all. So yeah, what do you want to ask a little bit about the education piece, Aki? 
Yeah, I'm uh, being an educator. I'm really uh, curious. I'm sure you have a lot of uh, visitors from various, you know, schools locally. So, what's mm-hmm. your what, what what do you what what is your message to us, uh, footwear educators, and like what what do you think that we could focus on more? Um, Mm, good question. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. Could we tell our students. You know, we were sort of um, talking a little bit about this before we started, and I think that people will say things like, "Well, footwear doesn't matter," but then you know, I often will get this from men, for example, uh, and I'll say, "Well, if footwear doesn't matter, then you wouldn't mind putting on a pair of red stilettos and going getting <laughs> coffee, right?" Exactly. And they'll be like, "No, absolutely not." <laughs> and so I think that their footwear is. <laughs> is so everyday in many ways. And yet the everyday actually reflects much larger power structures. And so I think that by um, illuminating for people what those power structures might be, what those assumptions might be about who is wearing this pair of shoes or who is this pair of shoes being designed for, I think that that kind of work, especially today where we're being asked to question a lot of um, the binaries that we uh, sort of have in society, I think that, believe it or not, a pair of shoes can do that. And so um, I think that would be my simplest answer. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. It's like really uh, trying to go a little bit more in depth to the culture of footwear rather than just, you know, the, the vision, visuals or it. I was actually, you know, with the red stilettos, I was in Italy um, I wore bright Barbie pink patent leather brogues. <laughs> and this, uh, I walks out of my apartment <laughs> and this older lady looks at me and she crossed herself. <laughs> and I, oh and I looked over my shoulders thinking like, did she see like some horrible accident or something? No, it was, <laughs> it was me and my Barbie pink shoes. So it's absolutely, you know, we, we're really culturally ingrained with certain kind of a binary ideas. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's break and those. And also, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just put in an exhibition called The Great Divide, uh, Footwear and the Age of Enlightenment. And one of the things it does is it talks about how the binaries that we think about today were actually, many of them were firmed up, established in the 18th century. And and one of the things I talk about there is that we have this beautiful pair of men's shoes that have a little pink heel. But pink in the 18th century was a more a, a color more commonly used by boys because it was considered mm. to be a softer version of military red and girls wore blue because that's what the virgin mary wore oh. and so it, and so that just goes to show that these things that sometimes people even claim are biological mm. that girls love pink or women love high heels have no place in I mean, it, that, that's just not true it's all culturally constructed you know, Elizabeth, since you're on the topic of heels, I was curious to know, they say heels weren't even invented for women. Initially, they were they were uh, invented for men. Is that true? Yes, that is my research. Where it goes and back to the so, t- 10th century where uh, Persian men used to wear them uh, when they would go horseback riding. Is that correct? That is what, that's my research. Correct. Wow. So my, first, my first question when I got hired was, why the high heel? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I thought that there would be lots of research on this, and it turns out that there just wasn't. And so I began to try to figure out why the high heel. And so I have traced it as far back as 10th century Persia. Um, I believe that it's probably, it probably does date back further. But um, what my research has shown is that it really did start out as an equestrian tool. This is why cowboys wear high heels. Mm -hmm. We just don't think of them as being high heel wearers but they are. 
And so um, the heel was in my, my thesis is that it was invented in relation to the stirrup, which itself mm -hmm. was invented third, fourth century, something like that. And that it allowed um, riders to really steady themselves in the saddle. It changed the ability um, for them to hold heavier weaponry and mm. it transformed warfare. Mm. Uh, so then my next question was, since I knew that Persians had worn heels in the 10th century, by later centuries, most Western Asians were wearing heeled footwear. Europeans fully knew about heeled footwear. Uh, and why did it take so long for, for Europeans to adopt the heel? That was my mm. second question. And that had to do with um, the emergence of interest in Persia. It's a very long story, we won't get into it, but basically England in particular began to create a trading relationship with Persia. Persia had this amazing um, uh, leader who wanted a great deal of connection with uh, the, with European countries. And so again, it's my thesis that European men begin to add heels to their riding boots in relationship to interest in Persia. Mm. And so it does enter men's fashion. But see, our next question wasn't, wasn't about the Persian culture and all that. Wasn't it? Um... Yeah. Do you <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Were, were men wearing them other than when they were riding? <laughs> I mean, to feel so, and look so, taller, maybe, yeah. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> or fashion, yeah, so, whatever. So when it comes in, the earliest images that I can see of Europeans wearing heels, they are almost always wearing them as uh, heeled riding boots. But men who had heeled riding boots tended and had portraits painted of themselves tended to be of the upper classes, having a beautiful horse, like having a sports car. Correct? Mm -hmm. And so very quickly, the heel, this newfangled style becomes associated with upper class dress. And so men did wear heeled footwear very happily from around 1600 to about 1730. But women also started wearing heels in the early 17th century as well. And my other thesis uh, is that the reason why women began to wear high heels is that there happened to be a kind of craze in women's fashion around this period for women to borrow from the male wardrobe. Oh. There are many uh. elements of dress that they were borrowing. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so women began to wear heels in the effort to look more masculine. Oh, not there to look go. taller? No. That's <laughs> strange. So they're mapping and, over the look of the man, the male huh. look. Interesting. Really interesting cultural stories and histories. Uh, again, you know, emphasizing the fact that we should, everybody should study more about uh, footwear. Mm -hmm. uh, in your research, uh, you talked about the construction of these uh, Persian uh, high heel shoes. And I find mm -hmm. that really uh, interesting that they use particular kind of uh, outsoling where the sole goes to the inside uh, of the heel. Why are Louis heels called Louis heels? Louis heels. Good question. So Louis heels, uh, it's a term that actually only get, starts to be used around the 1860s. And it was part for, for the first half of the 19th century, heels were completely out of women's fashion. And they only come back into fashion in the middle of the 19th century. Again, I argue um, it has to do with sort of the 
the, the waning of the cult of domesticity. And as many women wanted to engage in the public world, there was, curiously, a revival of 18th century fashion in women's dress. And I think that part of it was political to remind people of what happens if you allow women into the public realm, remember Marie Antoinette, remember mm -hmm. everything that happened. And so all of a sudden, women's fashion is obsessed with dress that is very nostalgic for the 18th century. And so the Louis heel, which was, which is part of this reintroduction of 18th century fashion, um, has a curvy shape, and it's named after Louis the 15th oh. Um, oh, at 15th. that time. I didn't even know what a Louis heel was. <laughs> but in the 1860s, they never called a Louis heel back when Louis XIV, Louis, Louis the 14th was wearing them. Mm. Yeah. You got to take notes for your class, Aki. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, what, was, what was the year no, again? Just have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> oh, no, no. I remember. Do you I remember? remember. Yeah. 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 That was too funny. Now I learned something about the Louis Hill. So what do you think is the most important invention for the shoe? Um, so I, the most important invention throughout the entire history of footwear. I would say would maybe the past hundred years. Yeah, past, okay, so first I would say that Western shoemaking um, remained pretty much the same for quite a while until industrialization, which profoundly changed shoemaking in the 19th century. And then in answer to that question, what was perhaps the most important invention in shoemaking in the last 100 years? It's hard to say, mm -hmm. um, but I would think that the stiletto was a pretty important invention and one that still, until very recently, has held a dominant position in our ideas of idealized female beauty. Mm, and when was that? When, when did the stiletto come into being? The stiletto um, is a bit of a process. And so you begin to, so the term stiletto was used in the early 50s for many things. It meant sleek and narrow. So mm. there was actually a fighter jet that was called the stiletto. Oh. Um, women, oh. what, what we now call pencil skirts, mm -hmm. were yeah. called stiletto skirts. Oh, okay. um, there were all manner of things that were very narrow and slim that were described as stiletto. So the stiletto heel was this very thin, slender heel. And one of the challenges in the history of heels was how to give height, yet also stability. Traditionally, heels, higher heels for women were carved out of wood. But as you know from looking at a stiletto, that would if you were to carve a stiletto out of wood, it'd be like attempting to walk on a chopstick. Mm -hmm. It would break. <laughs> it would break eventually, yeah. Right. And so in the uh, 1952, 1953, they begin to use um, narrow extruded metal um, shafts or pieces of... Mm -hmm. And, and and so because this was steel, it would uh, it was able to be very very thin and yet support the weight of a woman. And so it quickly transitioned to, to hard plastics, which many stilettos today are hard plastics. And so what happened was you now had materials okay. that could be very very thin, very very high, and yet not break when a woman wore them. So maybe this is part of your research as well. I, I read somewhere yeah. on one of the endless books that you know that's been published about heels that the the metal component inside the stiletto. By the way, in Finnish, stiletto is a switchblade. Mm. 
we use yeah. that actual word. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the Italian word for small knife. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. funny when you yeah. mentioned that. Yeah. So that, that that the metal actually was a um, side product of war effort. That metal production became better, or uh, have you? Yes, read and that? so so that is um, what I have seen as well. But what exactly that means? <laughs> It, it, I, I haven't done the metallurgic um, research yet uh, yeah. to find out exactly what they mean. But yeah, that it, it wasn't so much that the, the metal was um, different. It was the ability to extrude such narrow mm. um, rods that yeah. that was something that came out of uh, wartime production that was then repurposed. And I really liked it when you said that you're not, um, you know, a specialist in metal sciences because there's so many broad statements made, uh, especially in today's world with everybody being specialist in something in Google and Wikipedia, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's like never never say anything until you've done like the proper research. So that's really appreciated. Correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, so, and, and so one of the things that I have been lucky to do a lot, it, it, not a lot, but in my research, particularly with um, early modern footwear is X-ray. Oh, that's looking, fun. Looking at interior constructions, very interesting. Yeah, I want to talk more about that in a minute. I just I have a beautiful X-ray. <laughs> you do? Yeah, Nick, Nick Vesey, the British X-ray photographer. He photographs mm. cars and he photographed the shoe. Oh, I cool. Bought it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Maybe you can give it to the yeah, museum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No way. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's you've gone too far now. So one, I did want to ask you about you know there, in the U.S. apparently there's approximately 125,000 accidents a year just from high heels. So, podi so podiatrists are very, very happy about this, yeah, right? They never, they never ask you not to wear high <laughs> uh -huh. heels, right? So it seems to me it's like one of the few, it's one of the few consumer products <laughs> I haven't seen a warning on the package with. I mean, uh, and, it, and it seems like there's so many people that, or so many women, I should say, that just, especially younger women who think they can go, and you've seen this on TV where they're running in their high heels, mm -hmm. you know, um, like nothing's ever going to happen. So well, I, what so comments I would do you have that about around. that? Ah, okay, oh, good. And and ask because I think oftentimes this, these ideas of women being um, irrational in their choice of footwear is is something that comes up quite a bit. Like women act, uh, are they acting frivolously? Are they are they um, you know privileging fashion over their own uh, uh, safety? I counter with that by saying, what is the risk of not wearing the high heels? And what I mean by that is right now, we're actually not in a high heel moment, but we have been in the past where women couldn't even show up to jobs without wearing their high heels. Mm. A few years back, there was a receptionist who showed up at a job and she was not wearing what they considered to be appropriate footwear, which in her case was a pair of high heels. And so she lost a day of pay because wow. she did not wear the appropriate attire. And so one of the things that if we live in a world where women are valued for their desirability over other things and high heels are central to the construction of desirability, if you show up in flats, like why do we, why do we describe women who are unattractive as wearing sensible shoes? That's true. There you go, Michael. That's true. That's well, your answer. Trying to get the answer. Here. There you go. Yeah. That's I mean, true. That term alone instantly conjures up a kind of woman whose desirability is long gone. And so what does that mean? And what, what does a young woman, when hearing that, 
what choices does she actually have in in the footwear that she chooses? So it's to really, wear? in a sense, it's a fashion statement mm -hmm. as, as well, well as I think the it's a gender statement. Okay, mm -hmm. and, and a gender. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, gender. I, I think it's expressing you know one's being uh, through your dress. And, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a better yeah. way to say it. Yeah. So um, yeah, I just I just think that we aren't as Oftentimes we do discuss fashion as being something that what we can personally express ourselves, but I think that we are in fact very limited. You know, uh, Aki, for example, got a reaction for wearing a bright pink pair of brogues, and 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 he didn't even understand what the what the you know what the woman was crossing herself about. Looking around, was there somebody? You know, was there some horrible evil afoot? Um, and no, it's just me. And so I, I think that that fashion often has much less to do with personal expression and more trying to figure out how to navigate oneself through society and and live within often the confines um, that society has placed on you. Hmm. Interesting. Not that I not that I have an opinion about this. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting. So you're saying that it's important for us to kind of navigate the current cultural uh, environment rather than ex express ourselves. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if we could just express ourselves? <laughs> Absolutely. I think that if we were allowed to express ourselves, we would all dress very differently one yeah, from the other. Absolutely. Right? And yet you can see commonalities in um, how certain genders are dressed, how socioeconomic groups are dressed. And so I think that fashion is more often used to create um, cultural alignment than it is to express true individuality, I'm sorry to say. I'm taking notes. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's an unfortunate story of the, of the young woman who, you know, was sent home wearing, you know, wrong type of a, you know, footwear. Mm -hmm. So that kind of brings me to the, the word of uh, sumptuary laws. Oh yes! Yeah. <laughs> Look at her like, instantly She's lighting, lighting up. Yeah. So, so I was thinking. The, I was thinking the other day that, oh, isn't it? Isn't it nice that we don't have sumptuary laws today? But then my question is, is it really? Do we have then sumptuary laws? Of course. Is, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that it's necessarily that you can pay your way into. Well, that's not exactly true. Um, you know, we we do have. Um, examples of people buying things that may be above their means, so to speak, and thereby sort of promoting the fact that, or promoting the image of being from a socioeconomic group that they may in fact not belong to. Uh, this, of course, was the whole function of sumptuary laws was to uh, make sure that that kind of thing didn't happen. There's a lot more of social mobility at the moment. But at the same time, when someone's caught out, then they can be um, socially disciplined for being uh, for their um, their uh, uh, deceit uh, to being made known. I didn't say that very articulately, but you understand my point. Mm. And so sumptuary laws absolutely are not a part of the law of the land anymore, but I think we still socially um, look down upon people who are seen as trying to reach above their station. You know, the term nouveau riche. Nouveau riche, yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think given time, I think we should just transition and really talk about sneakers at this point. And, you know, you did write the book collab that was, was that issued in 2018, wasn't it? 
No, Collab came out in 2019. Out of the Box, The Rise of Sneaker Culture came out in 2015. Okay. So how many books have you written exactly? Do you... Um... Uh, 11, I think. Wow. So you either authored or co-authored 11 or you authored solo author. I authored. There's one, there's one <laughs> publication, a, a catalog uh, called Fashion Victims, uh, uh, Perils and Pleasures and Perils of Dress in the 19th Century that I did co-author. Amazing book. It's a uh, essential reading for my students. I just came from a lecture today referencing the book. So thank you oh. for writing that. Well, 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 That's well good wait, to hear. maybe. So that I, wow. I co-authored the catalog. Um, my my co-curator, Alison Matthews David, she also wrote a book called Fashion Victims. It, and so probably it's her book that you're referencing rather than mm. our catalog. Yeah. But you had an exhibition in Bata. Yes, yes. Yeah, we did that together. And then she wrote this independent book and we together wrote a catalog. <laughs> Right, and that was part of the question about the accidents on the heels and so forth that came mm. actually from that book. But in terms of the sneakers, how did you get involved in the sneakers? How did you get involved in this whole collab culture between the brands and either the celebrities or the movie stars or, or the like the Damien Hirst, the, you know, the contemporary artist out of, out of England, which was amazing. Um, so I love the way the book is chronologically put in order. Mm -hmm. And then I really liked this whole interview with Chris Hill too. Yeah. And, and there's some just amazing discoveries in that interview, especially about the Easter eggs and the hidden things yeah. within shoes. So, but how did you initially come to embrace the sneaker? It doesn't sound like you were embracing shoes. Then you were at the museum embracing the history of the shoes. And then how did the sneakers, quote unquote, sneak up on you? <laughs> uh, uh, sneakers oh sneaked up on me um, partly out of aggravation. Uh, when I would go to parties or I would talk to people about what my job was, they'd hear I worked at the shoe museum. And so they would say, oh, that must be a museum for women. Uh, all your research must be for women. And I was like, did nobody hear about <laughs> sneakers or sneaker culture? Um, and so I was... I was aggravated by this concept that women just biologically loved footwear. And I thought, you know, I'm going to look at uh, constructions of masculinity and sneakers. And so I, I told Mrs. Bata, I asked Mrs. Bata if um, I could do an exhibition on sneakers. And she said yes. And so that was in 2011. And so I began to do research into the history of sneakers. I do like to see if I can understand the origin of something. So out of the box, looked at the whole history of the sneaker from the middle of the 19th century to today. And then because I have a hard time dropping things, um, I have continued to work with sneakers and collab um, just came up because I was seeing how important collaboration was. I was interested in why we want to consume collaboration. Uh, it seems like a slight shift from a cult of genius uh, that had been sort of in the headlines in the earlier 2000s. And I also thought nobody's done this history. And so I wanted to go back and start with Adidas, or it wasn't Adidas yet, Basel Brothers, um, and, and then point out that things like... Um, uh, oh my goodness, I'm having a brain freeze at the moment. But anyway, early very early um, collaborations uh, have a, a long history in sneakers. And so I thought it would be revelatory to do that work. I was surprised to see how many of the sneakers are 
owned by the Bada Shoe Museum. So, um, it, so are were those like the Rihanna sneakers? You know, through right, through yeah. Puma. So th- were those donated by her? Were those donated by Puma? And then how- those were donated by Puma. Yeah. And so, how many sneakers, or just how many shoes, and then how many sneakers does the Bada Shoe Museum have and store and curate and so forth? So when I when I asked Mrs. Bada if I could work on sneakers, in part that was um, a little bit outside her wheelhouse because although she'd been collecting footwear. For decades, sneakers had not been a collecting focus for her or for the museum. And so we actually have, we're increasing our number of sneakers quite a bit, but we have 14,500 plus pairs of shoes and, and other attendant artists. It's almost as big That's as your lot. closet, Aki. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, a dream. It's the, yeah, it's the Amaldo Marcos. Amaldo you know, Marcos. Yeah, yeah, channeling the inner Amaldo Marcos. Amaldo okay. Marcos only had 2,000 pairs. Really? She was it nothing. Was it out she wasn't even on yeah, it the It didn't radar. look like that. Yeah, 2,000? Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's, well, you should but, see what 14,000 looks like. Yeah. Wow. Well, I got to come visit this museum soon uh, when, yeah. we're, when we can cross yeah. the border. So anyway, there's there. 14,500 and some, and we're, shoes, and, right. right, and they're on, isn't there one floor that's just for exhibitions, and then the f- shoes are actually on the floor, and then there's some storage too, right? Almost everything is in storage because we have a permanent gallery, which is what you're referencing, but then we also have three temporary galleries, and that's where we're able to do um, changing exhibitions. Mm -hmm. And so at any given time, we have about, I think the number is 7% of the collection on view. So everything else is in storage. And this is basically my job security because we change exhibitions and we have so many things in storage. I, I am able to think of new ideas and take things out of storage that have not been on view before and, and tell new stories. So we're always changing things. I'm really curious about the logistics of, of um, storage of items. I visited the Museum of London uh, archive in, in, a, mm-hmm. in behind the scenes. I also took yeah. the students to Blythe House in uh, London yeah. for the V&A, and it was just mind-blowing, I mean, just to go and see mm-hmm. all that. But then I started thinking, like, who, who takes care of all this? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm sure there's pests involved. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of things <laughs> that you have to worry about. Does you it know? have to be temperature-controlled, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, 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 and so we do have at the moment we have two distinct storage rooms, one, um, and then they're they're humidity and temperature controlled mm. separately. Okay. And in the north storage room, this is where we have first storage. We have our First Nations material, and so they record all of those objects require a slightly different um, uh, environment to be secure. And we do. We're very, very lucky. We're very small staff, but we have a full-time conservator and we have a collections manager. And so the artifacts are very, very well taken care of. And, um, and, and they do a great job ensuring that everything is secure and going to be preserved for generations to come. Fantastic. What's the oldest shoe you have? It's 4,500 years old wow. and it's a pair of... Um, uh, funerary shoes, so they never were intended to be worn. Uh, they were for inclusion within an Egyptian grave. Um, the Egyptians believed that you needed to have everything with you uh-huh. in your tomb, in your grave site, in order to have it in the next world. And so obviously shoes were a part of that. Sometimes you find 
sometimes real shoes are found in, in um, these uh, situations. This particular pair was more symbolic. What's your yeah, latest? What's your latest? Sorry, what? What's your latest acquisition? Oh, oh the most recent. Um, most recent is. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. oh, I should know this off the top of my head. Um, we just got uh, Alex, a pair of Alexander, Alexander McQueen's from 2010, and but we do have um, Nike Reimagines are from 2014, uh, and so I we are constantly acquiring. Oh, I know. This is why I'm waiting. <laughs> why I'm, I, I just bought a pair of shoes. <sighs> Who's the maker? Um, pandemic related because they are completely washable. And oh. so I wanted to make sure that we had something from the pandemic. We also received a donation from John Fluvog of a pair of shoes that he designed for Bonnie Henry, who is the chief medical officer, I believe that's her title, of British Columbia. And he made this pair of shoes for her as the pandemic began. And so I, we are interested in um, rapid response collecting. Oh, I love John Fluvog. He's amazing. <laughs> So yeah, 50th anniversary this year. <laughs> yeah, super. Yeah. So yeah. what what is your personal favorite pair of shoes there at the museum? Um, I do get this question a lot, and I really can't answer it. I think that, the, and the reason I can't answer it is that I'm interested in what the shoes, what stories are embedded in the shoes. And sometimes it's the story of the maker. Sometimes it's in the story of the material. Sometimes it's the story of the wearer or the reseller or the merchandiser. And so I have, each pair of shoes has so much information in it that I can't not love all of them. Um, so I know that's never the answer that people want, but it is in fact true. Uh, so I really love and want to unlock all of the information in each and every pair of shoes in the collection. But what about Elizabeth Semmelhack's cl own closet? <laughs> Does she have a so, favorite pair of shoes? Like I do, you know, I have these old Skechers that I bought, you know, <laughs> years ago. And I just wear them at home. They've never been outside. They're really comfortable. <laughs> you know, so I think most people have a favorite, favorite pair. pair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does I, Elizabeth? So my favorite pair is... Uh, is related to a story. And so I was um, invited by the Metropolitan Museum in New York to go through their shoe collection. And they have one of the most important Roger Vivier collections in the world. And I was going through all of the Vivier collections, not knowing that at that exact moment, the Vivier brand was being relaunched. And so I was having lunch uh, with my colleagues there and somebody said, oh, Saks Fifth Avenue is having this amazing sale. You got to go down, shoe sale, you got to go down. So I went down and I found this single rose suede <laughs> pair of Vivier's shock heel, this heel that he invented. And I put it on, it fit like a dream. And I was like, okay, I'll take it, I'll take it. And the, the shoe person was like, I don't know where the other half pair is. And so I spent, I looked oh. under every cushion, under the chairs, <laughs> looking everywhere. And I was like, I, I know this sounds insane, but I'm working on Vivier and I have to have this pair of shoes. They didn't turn up. <clears throat> Pardon me. They didn't turn up until about six months later. The salesperson had tracked them down to somebody mm -hmm. at Saks who had it in their office as an ornament and i thought and then they finally <laughs> reunited the pair and charged me for them but i uh, <laughs> but i did get them and so i i do treasure that 
particular pair of shoes. Well, there you go. It's like asking your mother, it's like, what's your favorite pair of shoes? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, I can't have favorite, but there's a favorite. Yeah. But there is. <laughs> Well, that's for me. And the fact that they fit too, like that they, I am, I'm very tall. And so finding shoes is a bit of a, a challenge for me. And I'm like the shoemaker whose uh, children have no shoes. I have no time to shop. So <laughs> my shoe wardrobe is pretty small. <laughs> Elizabeth, what do you believe are the next milestones in the evolution of footwear? Um, I do think that, you know, if by evolution, you mean what's going to be in fashion for the next two years. Yeah. I, I think that we are, at first I was on the fence thinking that maybe because we're all stuck at home or we have been stuck at home, that people would want to come back uh, when this is over with very fancy dress, which would mean maybe a return uh, to high heels for women, maybe a popularity of the business brogue for men, something like that, or the boot. Um, however, the longer we're in this, and now I can also see what's being on offer, Vivier, for example, recently their, their fall offerings include a fuzzy slipper for outdoor wear. Mm. And so I, I think the longer that we're out of uncomfortable things, the harder it will be for us to wear them again. And so I, you know, the term hard pants, which are the pants that you put on to go outside that button and zip. Um, you know, people are moving more towards joggers and elastic waists. And I see the croc is very, very popular mm. with young, younger kids. I think that it's going to remain comfort. Mm. And so I do think sneakers, crocs, um, these things are going to probably increase in popularity. We might have a, a formal backlash, if you will, but I think that's a few years out. People will be getting more comfortable. I'm going to rebel. As if they're not, as if, they're, as if <laughs> yeah, we're not comfortable yeah. enough. Yeah. I'm going to rebel. Yeah, yeah. so am I, Aki. <laughs> yeah, we'll. Well, I think a lot of people working from home, like I'm working from home. That's I think true. That we're, in, we're increasingly having this um, blurred, these blurred lines between our public and private selves. And so if our private selves want comfort, now we do our work more comfortably working from home, I just see that we, I feel like the floodgates are open. It's going to be hard to um, separate out again. This is me on my work time mm -hmm. and this is me on I my off right. time. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely. right. Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a big, big, big sort of unknown blur. I noticed with my yeah. students is that uh, sometimes, because we, we have, we have resumed face-to-face -face, uh, teaching. Uh, some students oh, are, yeah, yeah. Some students are really like putting good clothes on because it's their chance to do something good to and fashionable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then some students look like they just crawl out of bed. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. In fact, a student wore yellow Crocs. <laughs> right. So, well, hey, come on. Crocs are super fashionable right now. <laughs> I didn't say, I didn't say a word because I commented on that before and they complained. So I'll, I'll stick with, yourself. I'll stick with my heels. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't cross yourself like that. Was you didn't cross yourself. <laughs> exactly. Almost. <laughs> One of the best things that ever happened to Crocs was COVID-19. <laughs> honest, because they were just headed down to nothing. Uh -huh. uh, they were in big, big trouble financially. And that, and that you can say that for a number of companies, if it wasn't for COVID-19, they, they just wouldn't be here, unfortunately. Um, so we're going to do our rapid fire lightning <laughs> round with, fire. The, with the shoe, shoe concepts. Yeah, we have three favorite uh, things. <laughs> uh, three favorite yeah, things to always talk about and sort of drop these words. So I can just quickly say a few sentences what come to your mind. Uh, planes. Um, 
exotic, excessive, and rude. <laughs> rude. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> And the reason I say they're rude is that young men are known to have stuffed the tips of their pulens with with moss, um, causing them to turn in a phallic-like way upward um, to the distress of the people who saw them wearing them. Okay. I'm, I'm yeah, speechless yeah. now. I know. She got you. And, and, and you and you and you're looking at my shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Courtesans. Misunderstood. Hmm. Misunderstood. <laughs> Elaborate. There's, yeah. Uh, there's a huge misunderstanding that Chopin's were the Chopin's are these excessively high platform shoes that were worn across Southern Europe, um, but they became associated in fashion history um, with the courtesans of Venice, and it is a complete misunderstanding of how um, Chopin's actually worked, and so course i've done this this work on the origin of the chopin and the reason why uh, venetian women wore chopins these really high platforms was they wore them under their skirts uh to lengthen the amount of cloth used in the creation of those skirts in order to show familial wealth and so this was the footwear of the most upper classes and then there became a panic um when uh, all of a sudden Venice was in financial trouble and most families could not afford to marry uh, more than one female each generation. And so it all, all of a sudden there were all these unmarriageable men and they became completely afraid that these men would turn to things like homosexual behavior or that they would, um, you know, that they would just be off wilding. And so both the state and the Senate agreed that the honest courtesan was a way to help dissipate some of these male passions. And so the, the Venetian courtesans who wore these high chopines were dressed like young brides. And they oh. were meant to look like the most respectable wow. of women. And so it is a complete, um, so the understanding of Chopin's and courtesans is a complete mm. misunderstanding of yeah. how they were actually, how Chopin's were actually used mm. in around 1600. They were misunderstood. Great. So one last, mm -hmm. one last word, it's kind of a more universal, uh, craftsmanship. So I, I think that um, craftsmanship, I would, I would say, footwear around the world. Um, before industrialization, shoemakers themselves were craftsmen, particularly in Europe, where it was a male trade. And the amount of skill and labor that goes into making a pair of shoes, the challenge with a pair of shoes is that you can make a single thing, but how do you make it to mirror an exact opposite? And how do you make it so that it's wearable? And so the skill, the craftsmanship that goes into that is remarkable. Thank you. That's absolutely music to my ears <laughs> and my colleagues' ears. <laughs> do you have any uh, last words of advice for those entering the world of art history, curating, or fashion design? Um, I, I, I think... Um, it is a very competitive field. It is, I, I think that we are at a moment where we're looking, we're curious about 
cultural difference, about history. And so I feel that there should be a huge amount of opportunity out there. And so I think that my words of advice would not be so much to those who are willing to dedicate their lives to this mission, but to the rest of society to support that mission. I think that you actually learn so much about the things that you think don't matter, like shoes. And that we can begin to see how we are, how we react, when we begin to look at the things that we think don't matter. And that once we begin to consider them um, academically, thoroughly, we begin to have insights that can actually help us, I know this sounds Pollyanna-ish, but make a better world. Mm. Great advice. Hey, man. Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) All day long. Yeah. Yeah. All day long. Yeah. So, Elizabeth... Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And we want to thank your mother, too. I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much for appearing on Fashion Cast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us on our website at fashioncastpodcast.com.